This episode has been brought to you in part by the Azrieli Music Prizes. Join them in celebrating artistic excellence at the AMP Gala Concert, live from Maison Symphonique in Montreal, happening October 20th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Orchestre Metropolitain will premiere award-winning music by laureates Aharon Harla, Iman Habibi, and Rita Ueda. Learn more at azrielifoundation.org backslash AMP. This is Bonjour Chai, the If the Chuva Fits edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Montreal and David Sklar in New York City. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we look back at the year that was and pick some of our highlights, what we got right and what we didn't. And because it's that time of the year, we decided to do a little bit of repentance and the long-awaited part one of the Great Canadian Sermon Slam. David, Alana, what are your Rosh Hashanah plans? I mean, I am going to be returning to Calgary late Sunday night. So I think, I guess I'll be returning back home as Rosh Hashanah commences. Oh, you're doing tshuva. You are returning. Returning back to my land. There you go. But on Rosh Hashanah, you're going to services? Are you... uh... Well, it's a little complicated because I'll, I'm going to be starting rehearsals for a show uh, just as Rosh Hashanah starts. I'm going to be a bit busy, but I have already requested to take Yom Kippur off. That was my that was my non-negotiable part of the contract. Then on Yom Kippur, you can repent for missing Rosh Hashanah. Exactly. Perfect. Yes. Alana, what's your uh, w- what are you doing for Rosh Hashanah? I'm going back to Toronto. I'm basically in and out of Toronto all month, which we'll get to later. Um, but I'm going to be spending it with my boyfriend's family. And then we're spending the rest of the high holidays in Montreal. So a little back and forth family time. That's the plan. Show plans? Show services? Yeah, I think I'm just going to go wherever his family goes. Okay. Go with the flow. (laughs) It's an easy Rosh Hashanah. Go with the flow. Yeah. Um, So uh, we're doing the whole, you know, hosting meals, getting people around and uh, doing that. Uh, I haven't to be... Absolutely honest, it's Thursday morning and I haven't even written out menus yet, let alone shopped for anything. I have a vague idea of what I want to be cooking, so I'm not too worried about it. And I have Friday and Saturday night and Sunday. I'll manage. Not worried about it. I'll be fine. Did you take any... um... Did you take any advice from Jake Cohen from last week's interview? Um, some of the, the 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 simanim, right? Some of the symbols of the Jewish foods for the new year um, were kind of interesting. Like I like the idea of the the cabbage head. So I'm thinking about doing a cabbage soup. Um, and uh, not sure where I'm going with it yet, but that's something there. The uh, the sesame duka, right, right, was was kind of interesting to incorporate sesame into the Rosh Hashanah meal. Um, but I do have a couple of stalwarts that I do. I do a chicken with pomegranate that everybody loves, and it's very Rosh Hashanah y. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was it was nice. It was uh, a fun chat. And uh, if you haven't heard it yet, uh, he does give some good tips for planning for all the holidays. I'm not so worried about Rosh Hashanah as I am thinking about leaning ahead to Sukkot and all the meals for there but uh i don't have to worry about that for a few more weeks. you know i i ordered his book after listening to that interview um right to my to my mother and father's house i think mom you can expect a gift arriving late today or tomorrow for your birthday because he like you is jewish 
Exactamundo. There's a lot of schmaltz and there's a lot of trafe in that book. But uh, yeah, it's a good book, but it really is. And uh, for services, uh, I'm going to the Shar because uh, that's what I do. I uh, support my uh, local uh, synagogue where uh, my wife is a professional. I thought you were going to um, say your local wife. No, <laughs> as opposed to the distant one. Yeah. In the past few, right, the first few years we were here, it was very difficult to really be in the moment on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur because I was uh, really on children and they were around and we would have sitters. But, you know, she is focused. It's like really like a big deal day. And so she can't really have time to spend to think about that. And uh, the past few years before that, we services were kind of up in the air and flux and weird and stuff. But this year, um, I'm kind of looking forward to the fact that even though the services are not exactly what I go for for the high holidays, namely with a big canter and a choir. And it's beautiful. It's a, it's a magnificent service, but it's not conducive to the way that I think about prayer for the holidays for this introspectiveness, um, which is, you know, it's not a objective problem. It's just something that that's me, right? I'm trying not to knock the choir and the canter and, the, and that whole service. Um, but for the first year, I think that the kids are old enough to really do a lot by themselves and to even come to shul by themselves and to get themselves a snack when they need need it, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm looking forward to sitting in my pew and focusing and having a meaningful Rosh Hashanah for the first time in a very long time. So uh, here's to hoping. That sounds wonderful. Check in next week and I'll let you know how it went. So without further ado, after our sponsor, we will get to our year-end wrap-up. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. So we are on the cusp of ending 5782. And as we get ready to reflect on our own lives and actions, as we stand and sit and stand and sit in services and in judgment, Well, why not do that for the state of the Frozen Chosen? Were our topics just and proper? Did our opinions prove themselves right? Will Bonjour Chai be inscribed in the Book of Life? So sound the shofar to wake us from our slumber and strike fear in our hearts, for complacency is the evil from which we run. Behold, the day has come for us to ponder our podcast. Very poetic, Avi. That's (laughs) what I do. So what were some of the stories that you guys uh, really reflected on that made you uh, think this was uh, something that was important over the year? David, you know, you, you, you mentioned you mentioned sitting, you mentioned standing and prayer. And I just happened to be uh, yesterday at the Eldridge Street Synagogue. And many, many months ago, we did an interview with Rachel B. Gross. We interviewed her on that particular synagogue because she had an she had a, a chapter on that particular synagogue. And it really brought up some very interesting conversations, I thought, about Judaism and whether it felt like it was a a spent force, uh, just a part of the old culture here, maybe more nostalgic than actually a living, breathing present and future. So that was something that always interested me, and it's something that still concerns me. How do we evolve and safeguard our futures? 
And I'll have, you know, you two know that we now have some fans at the Eldred Street Synagogue. They were very interested in the Canadian Jewish News in this particular podcast. And I think they're going to start to listen um, uh, and become new fans of The Frozen Chosen. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a topic that I don't think will ever really go away. Um, the idea of the past and integrating the past into the future. Um, Rosh Hashanah is a, a great, as good a time as any to sit and think about, you know, what we're doing as a community and what we're doing personally and how much we connect to these nostalgic moments and how much we are hung up on them. Because sometimes being too connected to the nostalgia, and that's where I think the interesting discussion lay with that conversation with her was around um, are we too stuck in the past? Are we, you know, are we not willing to look at the future of Judaism and to innovate and to be better in that way? Um, so, you know, there's definitely, it's, it's still in the front of my mind, especially around this time of year. Yeah, and there's no real easy answers. I think when we were there, the synagogue is beautiful. It's a living, breathing museum. But when we asked, well, how many people are actually participating and attending services, the the uh, the person in charge sort of said, eh, maybe about 10 people. They're very old They've moved on. You know, most of the Jews now live in the Upper West Side or the Upper East Side. There's very few Jews that actually live in the downtown area where the synagogue is still preserved. So it's this thing of, oh, it's beautiful. It's so wonderful that it was saved uh, through a potential destruction and demolition. But then it's not really being used for the intention that it was built for. That's a good segue into one of the topics that really stuck out for me, which is about establishments. And it's like the future of Jewish establishments. We talked about shiny establishments versus more grassroots establishments. And a topic that's come up a lot in conversation amongst people that I know is a lot of the Christianization, I guess, of the way that things have turned out. Like there are the way that our shows look, the way that our giant uh, buildings are and the kind of like the whole structure that came about when we moved to these parts of the world and how we were influenced by other cultures and how now the spaces are empty. They're not fully empty, but and there's some shows that get more attendance than others. And certainly in Toronto, I found that the the pews were more full than Montreal from my experience uh, being back here for the last few months. And I think that begs the question, which we kind of touched on in that whole episode about establishments, but I think there's always more to talk about, of what does the the next generation want? Because maybe it looks different in the same way that we also talked about the big galas and the fundraising efforts and the, the move away from the way things were in the last couple of generations. No, I, it, you're absolutely right, Alana. And I think uh, what I've noticed is, you know, Chabad has a big movement, right? There's so many people that are of our generation that are excited by the Chab- the Chabad movement. And even the same thing on the Christian side. Very, There are very few attendants at something like a united church, but yet the evangelical churches are just bringing in families, bringing in people. And maybe we need to start looking more at what evangelicals do and well, what Chabad please, does please to really— well, well, No, I think this is important. It's kind of scary. Yeah. It's scary, but it works, right? Well, churches are empty, and then they are bringing in people, and they are they are a success. Well, so I'm just going to bring up a point that's come up recently in conversation um, with a Chabad rabbi that, that I uh, see very often here in Montreal. Um, and his take on it was that back when, let's say, my grandparents were growing up, in the secular world, the culture was around going to your church. And so for Jews, going to synagogue on Saturday fit into that diasporic model of everyone goes to their version of a church or a synagogue or a mosque on their day of the week. 
now that the, you know, the city that we live in or the cities that we live in have become more secular, it seems like that's kind of maybe infiltrating into the Jewish community of our generation because people are seeing that it's not so cool anymore to be on the show board and to do all those things. And so that's possibly what could be changing? I take offense. I'm on my Shoals board too, and I think it's pretty nifty and cool. No, that's cool. great. <laughs> but there's, it's going to take a lot of work to figure out how to get people to be involved in a way that actually excites them. I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot to say on this. Um, I, I know. <laughs> the, I mean, let me start by asking you, like, what excites you? I think I'm, I'm probably not the best person to speak for the people. You're, you're a people. For, I am a people, but I think I, in a lot of ways, I'm a bit of an anomaly because I am looking for that spiritual and religious connection, but I also want the community, whether secular or Shomer Shabbat, at the same time, I want everyone to come together. I'd like to see more people actively vocalizing that they want those things because right now what I'm experiencing is a lot of people hiding away at their parents' houses or just completely removing themselves from the community. And I want to see that vibrancy that you see in, you know, cities that have larger Jewish populations of young people come together and say, yeah, I want to do this and we should all get together and do Shabbat dinners. And it's something that I'm kind of trying to do now on my own and trying to organize things because I am noticing the difference um, based on other places that I've lived. But I wish there was like 30 people that were like, we all want to do this instead of five. But I think they're there. And I think that we just have to find them. I think the yeah, this goes back totally. to a lot of the stuff that we've discussed over the past year around the nature of what the community means, like the capital C community. And that there's, I think there's a lot of people that are turned away, self-selectingly turned away from the community because they look at the community and they say, this doesn't speak to me. Other things speak exactly, to me. Yeah. And that's not being represented within the big mm -hmm. C community. And we need to change that. We need to listen to what those people want and not say, well, you don't fit into whatever it is that I think about, and therefore you're not part of the community. Whether it's political, I spoke about it, you know, I wrote about it in the uh, the CJN magazine, right? And, with, and that I think that like, you know, whether it's political, whether it's um, spiritual, meaning it's uh, if you don't fit into a certain model of what Judaism can offer or should offer, uh, whether you, your thought, your ideas on Israel are different, all of this has come up, and yet um, there still is this refusal, right, on behalf of the community to 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 acknowledge that. And I think that we really are trying here at Bonjour High to to raise up these voices to say there are people out there that um, that have something to say. Um, but they're not being heard, and we want those voices here because we want those. We want to say that there are many, many ideas in the community. There are many, many different types of people. There are people that don't want Chabad, and there are people that very much want Chabad. And there are people that, um, you know, want whatever is being offered, and there are people that are, you know, happy getting it elsewhere. I think, you know, to address what you were saying, I think one of the big issues over the past little while is that ritual um, is now found outside of religious services. Right. And yeah. that's not my mm -hmm. idea. Right. I didn't come up with this, but it's something that I think about a lot um, about how people get their ritual from, um, you know, well, soul cycle is dead, but whatever is replaced it and whatever will replace it, gym in general, physical activity. Barry's gym. Yes. Um, whatever it's going to be. Um, people get ritual well, for me from it was that. Yoga for a long time. Yeah. 
People Which get I ritual is, is big for a lot of yeah from restaurants. People get ritual right by going and ordering in a very specific manner and having drinks um, before and after. These are rituals. Um, book club has become ritual, and all of these things um, people unconsciously don't uh, connect with the fact that they don't need those rituals from elsewhere anymore, and therefore they just sort of end up like doing their thing and that's we have to be recognizing that the rituals that we have are not speaking to people anymore in the same way and either say for the people that want jewish ritual that's there we don't need to reinvent it and we'll find other things that you can have that you are missing um or um reinvent the rituals and i i'm don't care about either way but that's something that we have to do and um you know i think that we've spoken about that many multiple times right even you go back to the circumcision um story that we covered last year um or the anti wannabe anti-circumcision the most important thing that i i got out of that was that there were jews that want to be part of the community except for this one ritual and the community just hears well this one ritual has to be like you know has to be has to be and therefore anything that isn't that right that you don't that you don't incorporate that we're going to reject you and they're like no we want to be part of the community yeah. It's also similar with the interfaith episode, getting, you know, those perspectives of people who are like, hey, I just want to show up at chill with my partner who isn't Jewish and I don't feel comfortable in these spaces. Or the episode we did on on queer Jews, very similar type of thing. And the interfaith, you know, marriage, it really struck a nerve with, I think, a lot of the listeners who f- sort of felt this is a line that we cannot cross. And once we cross it, we are beyond the pale, right? There, with the circumcision episode, there are these things that we have sort of set up in our community that says we cannot bypass this. And if we bypass this, this is the destruction of the Jewish community. What was very interesting, Avi even brought this several weeks ago, was sort of saying there has been assimilation, there has been interfaith marriage in this community for generations and generations, and it has not been the end. It has not, you know, been the doom of this community. It is growing, it is evolving, it will shift constantly. And I think that's very fascinating. I think it's great to have allies in our, within our community to fight with us and to, to stand beside us as we continue on this journey. People have been talking about the internally have been talking about the downfall of Judaism for 2,000 years, easily, more, well, you know, right? Every, Atlanta will know, there, yeah. There are many lines that we have crossed that everybody has gone and said, if we cross this line, then it's over. And if we have crossed this line, then it's over. And lines keep getting crossed and people either go back on them and say, that was fine, we, we, we got to go back, or they've learned to evolve it and make it work. Alana, you you obviously know the phrase, you know, theater's been dying for 2,000 years. It could be the same thing that Judaism, you could say, has been dying for 5,000 years, but yet here, here we are still. Yeah, but I think that that kind of speaks to the point about rituals. I think there's enough, there's still enough there emotionally in, in like a deep ancestral way that brings people uh, back or that continues to keep it alive, even if it's like a small amount of people who are keeping the rituals in the way that they used to in previous generations, there's still enough people to carry it on. And then now, I, I don't remember if it was you, Evie, that said this, but it's amazing how now there's so many more options of how to be Jewish, kind of going back to your point about, you know, how to be a queer Jew, how to be an interfaith Jew, how to be all those things. Like we live in 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 a time where there are more options like in the past you might have only been able to go to you know the synagogue of your town and that was your only way to connect to your Judaism but now there are so many you know options for people and there's so many different types of 
places and shoals and community centers and people making their own groups mm -hmm. around the world. Absolutely. But I think Canada still has a lot of work to do to catch up to that. Mm -hmm. But are there any lines that shouldn't be crossed? Are there any things that says, if you go beyond this, it's too far, it's too much, this is no longer Judaism? And I, I sort of asked this question because as I was walking around New York City, I saw a lot of signs saying, the Messiah is here. And it was obviously the picture of, I believe, Rabbi Schneerson, mm -hmm. right, who many people within the Orthodox community believe is the Messiah. And this got me thinking about Jews for Jesus. This got me thinking about Christian messianics who basically are believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but they keep kosher. They have services on Saturday. Some of them even circumcise their boys, and yet they believe Jesus is the Messiah. And I'm thinking, wait, these people probably do a lot more quote-unquote Jewish rituals than even I do. What makes them less Jewish than me? And are these people uh, even... Would would they even be considered to be brought into this community? Is that the red line? Because I'm thinking, no, these people believe in Jesus Christ. That is the end of story. They have crossed that Rubicon. I, I don't disagree, um, but I think it's an interesting and important point. It, I, I always find it ironic and have an interesting discussion with people around the fact that if you believe in nothing, right, you could still be a good Jew. Right. Nobody's going to kick you out. But as soon as you do everything properly, but you believe in one thing that you're not supposed to believe in, then that's a problem. Um, and even though Ju Judaism is often a, re a religion of action, and not a religion of, of theology, of thought, and there's not nearly as much theology and thinking um, about the religion um, that is uh, that is there, um, then, uh, you know, it's... Uh, there's something uh, to be to be thoughtful, uh, you know, to ask ourselves these questions about what's going on. Um, yeah. Speaking of our community and and the thoughts that we have within the community, I think some of the most impactful stories that we had were around the relationship between the Jewish community and uh, other communities. So, you know, the the discussions we had multiple discussions around the Jewish community and the indigenous communities. Um, and the um, what was our responsibility or relationship to the Uyghurs um, and uh, the war in Ukraine. So really like our place in the world um, really figured large in our thinking over the past year. And I think that that's important because uh, living in a vacuum has not always served us well. And I think that having that awareness and having that knowing what that relationship is um, should be interesting uh, to think about and important. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that. Uh, we even, you know, had a discussion with the the Muslim community, too, where we did an interfaith dialogue with them. So I think these are great uh, things to talk about is where do we fit in? I'll just echo mm -hmm. your 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 comments, Abby. Where do we fit in and how do we create a more a more just society within our country and abroad as well? Well, I think that's something that we do really well. Like when I talk about the podcast to people that I'm meeting, strangers or friends, I always say, this is a Jewish current affairs podcast, but we don't always just talk about things that are directly happening in the Jewish community. It's how does the Jewish community respond to what's going on in the country or what's going on in the world? What's the lens that we see it through? And I think that's what makes our mm -hmm. show really unique. And that and, balance and um, between right, the, the inward focus and the, and the relationship, right? I, um, I remember having a, a thought once when I was teaching something at a, at a synagogue and uh, realizing that there was a lot of people that were there that day um, that were very, very, or almost exclusively universalistic when they were thinking about their Judaism, right? My Judaism is how um, I relate to the entire world, and there's little to no particularism 
to my Judaism, right? It's not that the Seder is something that I think about as a Jew for Jews around Judaism, right? And that that's a ritual about Judaism, um, that it was about the Seder could be about my relationship to the world and how good I have to do and all of this stuff. And if you're purely particularistic, when you when all you think about is the Jewish community, right, that's a problem. When you're entirely universalistic, that's a problem. And I really think that one of the things that we do well, like you said on the show, is balance between the two and talk about uh, the fact that there should be things that are exclusively Jewish, right? It's not necessarily roles, right, on on shows, right, which we have spoken about, um, right? Not necessarily just particularistic that Jews should get Jews' roles. Um, and it's not purely universalistic that um, we have a responsibility to the rest of the world and that's all that we do. Um, but cap- keeping that balance is uh, is at the forefront of our minds, I think, when whenever we're putting together a show. And to build on that, I think... I'm thinking back to the episode we did on uh, Zionism and uh, the left. And I think that also is important to keep in mind is that we're showcasing a variety of voices um, and that that's important, kind of like what you were just saying before, is making sure that there's space for all the wide range of opinions within the community and without it. Of course. And uh, we cannot forget because this is not about universalism or particularism, um, but it's about deep spirituality. Um, our episode on uh, Judaism and cannabis was uh, was important and life altering. No, mind opening. Um, but what it was, what it did do, was it actually led to the um, it led to a partnership. Um, I now certify their product, uh, Oi Vapes. Um, they do an apple and honey. Um, a vape uh, cartridge that is available in the OCS that is certified by by me, which is kind of cool to have like a recreational cannabis product that is certified kosher. Um, we can get into the discussion of the details another time in another place. You can email me. We can figure that out. But boy, vapes. Um, and and they have promised that we will hopefully sooner rather than later have a Bonjour High um, branded cartridge in the OCS at some point in the future. Um we, we we have to think about what that looks like and what that uh, what that might be, but uh, um, we we cannot forget that, and that's for our sweet new year, and that was a great episode, also. But you know, that's just our opinions of stuff. Uh, we would love to hear what you thought um, over the past year, what you thought were great episodes, what you thought were horrible episodes. Um, send us an email at bonjour at the cjn.ca with your favorite segment of the past year or the piece that you think that we should revisit or what we actually missed out on a story that we should have covered and didn't. Um, that is bonjour at the cjn.ca. Let us know what you thought. So we're not perfect. We know it, and contrary to what you might think, we actually appreciate hearing about it from you. Uh, we read everything that you send in. We wanted to take some time now to do a bit of chuva. We are going to take some of the highlights of this past year's mailbag and, you know, reflect on it. Bonjour Chai is a work in progress, not because we're new, uh, but, but, we sh- but because we should always be trying to get better. The remarkable thing about this time of year is that we as Jews know the power of reflection and repentance. We don't just try and do something good. We actively address our shortcomings because when we make those better, doing good comes naturally as part of the process. So without further ado, let's dive in to um, some of our mailbag and see how we can get better. Who's going to start us off? Alana, go for it. Uh, So we got this email at the end of the summer. 
I'm growing tired of listening to the normative Jewish experiences on your show. It would be interesting if you had more orthodox and more secular perspectives. It seems like we always hear from the conservative and reform point of view during recent episodes. I haven't even heard Reconstructionism mentioned. Many people who proudly identify as Jewish are agnostic. Maybe an episode picking apart that would be on order. I also think you should get an orthodox and a secular voice on the panel. So first of all, <laughs> let's just let's just talk about that for a second because Avi is is literally an orthodox rabbi. I'm like modern orthodox-ish and David goes to a reform show but is pretty secular. So I'm not really sure where that was coming from and I think we have have we had any reconstructionist voices on We've the We've had show? a reconstructionist not... rabbi on. Rabbi. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, rabbi yeah. Boris Dolan, I know for sure has spoken and we've I think we've had others. Um if yeah. anything, I think we overrepresent people who might be a bit more religious leaning. <laughs> yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know what to make of that. I think that, um, I think everybody has their own definitions of what religion and what observance and what orthodoxy is. And I think that to a lot of people, for example, I don't fit into orthodoxy, right? I was at Ashkenaz and somebody came up to me and says, oh, you're at the Sharshmaim. Yeah, that's not orthodox. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And well, they use a microphone. And I'm like, you know, we can discuss this another time. But like, who gave you the did this? Who gave you the power and the ability to define what is orthodoxy and what is not? And so, when, at some point, um, while it's important to represent as many different varieties and flavors of Judaism as possible, I think it's just as important to recognize that your definition is not necessarily everybody else's definition, and you don't get to make the rules. And by you, I mean everybody who's listening, right? And I, I, I think it's there's a lot of people who have figured that out, and there are people who haven't. But at the same time. Um, maybe uh, talking more about what these definitions are and what these denominations are and um, having these voices continuing to be there is something that we should be thinking about. Well, we got a lot of feedback, I think, on the kosher sagas. So I'll, I think I'm just going to read you this one from August. Mm -hmm. Why are you so rude to keep speaking over Rabbi Saul Emanuel? You ask a question and he tries to answer, and I want to hear his answer, but you make it impossible but continually, by continually butting in. Please get someone who has manners and respect for other people while they are speaking and know how to hold his or her tongue when the guest is answering. You certainly don't show respect for someone else and want to hog the whole conversation. Now, I'm, I'm just going to throw it out there. I think I know who they were referring to in that conversation, uh, who... Well, it was only a two-person conversation. <laughs> and one of them was Rabbi Saul Emanuel, and uh, the other uh, no. one was not David I, I think that's true. So, uh, Avi, do you want to be the first to respond to that? Well, I mean, was I, was I, let me ask you something. I, I definitely know that I was belligerent. I was uh, a little uh, louder than I normally am. Um, was I too much? What do you guys think? Was it justified? Was it needed? Help me unpack it. Where where do I need to do tshuva on this? I mean, okay. There's like the me as the listener, the me as the journalist, Please, the me as the them. Jew. And I think like me as the person, I was like, oh my God, this is so hard to listen to because like I just felt so bad for the guy. I was like, oh, Avi's giving it to him hard. But at the same time, it was also very entertaining and interesting to hear you get so revved up. So there's that duality there where I'm like, if I was doing that interview, I probably wouldn't have gone as hard because I just have a hard time doing that and I, I would feel bad. But I think that it, it really did show that you cared a lot about the topic. 
Um, and I can understand your, where your frustration is coming from and feeling like you weren't getting the answers that made sense to you or that were even justified. Um, could you have done it a little bit softer and uh, let it build to that? Perhaps it seemed like it started out really strong. Um, I don't know. What do you think, well, David? It's a complicated one. I'll just say this. There's other people who wrote in to, you know, very much defend Avi and sort of saying, finally, you've you've removed the mask of this corruption and thank you for doing that. So it wasn't all negative. But I think sometimes what I'm trying to do as a listener is I, I want to understand this. And I think I think you got a bit stuck in the weeds in those conversations where I'm sort of saying, where is this conversation going? I'm missing some details that I really want. And it's things that I'm not always entirely clear about. So I think I just needed to I needed I wanted you to pull back a bit to get a more of the general state of what is really going on, what is rotten in the state of kosher meat. Well, maybe not rotten and meat in the same sentence. It's but, possible. Uh, yeah, okay. I get it. Yes. Um, look, could I have been less belligerent? Possibly. Do I think that maybe I wouldn't have gotten the same answers or same non-answers? I think that's possible also. Does that mean that I uh, still nevertheless have to think about respecting human beings as human beings? Yeah, for sure. Um, and will it reflect f better or differently in future interviews, even when I think that there's a topic to, that needs to get, you know, passions riled, like aroused and to really get into something? Um, I, I think so too. And I think that, you know, I'm not going to shy away from these types of interviews and these types of discussions and these types of topics. Um, but, and, you know, I will be aware of how to approach it better, how to approach it differently, and to wield that belligerence when needed and not just out of, uh, you know, unchecked anger or whatever it might be. So, you know, there's a bit of chuva there, but there's also a bit of an explanation. And uh, maybe chuva with an explanation is exactly. not really chuva. I was going to say um, that. <laughs> You can take yeah. that to the pearly gates. Take that, yeah. But God, I had to explain. It's, it was different. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, in that sense, I think that um, there's something to, to be thoughtful and to, to continue uh, reflecting on and uh, to do chuba there, for sure. I thought this uh, email was an interesting one that also came in August. I'm just going to pull a, a part of the email. Um don't be afraid to name schools. Why is Ilana the only one who will name the schools she went to slash is referencing? I think this can be inval an three two one. I think this can be an invaluable resource for many coping the day school and after school decisions and a guide on how to make the of whichever they choose. Uh, I think there's some typos. I, thought I in did this, but name anyway. my schools when we were talking about them. I'll I'll say it right now: Solomon Chector and Bialik High School. That's where I went. And I went to Yeshiva Gadola, right? It was not about, you know, shame or, or difference. I think that it just wasn't as relevant to the discussion of like which specific school. Um, you know, there's an important piece, though, in there. Sorry, Alana, what were you going to say? No, I was going to say I do find it interesting to get praise for that because I always question as I'm speaking, should I be naming all of these places? Because, you know, that's my struggle, I think, with being a voice um, and and expressing things that I've been through is that I also don't want to universalize my experience as the only one because everyone has had many different experiences and I don't want to shoot down some of these places and I have, you know, positive and negative experiences, whether it be at school camp or whatever. Um, so it was just interesting to hear it be pointed out like that. <laughs> 
For sure. I think you're I think you're, you're making an interesting point, right? Right that names are important, but only when they're relevant and are useful for the future for moving forward with it, right? If you have a if you had a horrible experience at a restaurant, but you know for sure that it wasn't had nothing to do with the restaurant. It just had to do with the specific moment of being there with uh, an irate chef and uh, a really tired, you know, wait staff, and you being very particular about whatever. And you wouldn't not recommend this restaurant to anybody else. Don't mention that. But at the same time, the flip side is true. If you have some experience, very positive or very negative, about a place, about a, a thing, a book, or whatever, and you want people to actively make a different choice because of your experience, then you should uh, you should talk about it. And I think that goes back to what this person is saying. I don't think we were trying to make um, school choices, you know, or, or have a discussion about which schools are better, which schools are worse um, in that conversation. Um, if we were, that would be very different. Um, and I think that that's, that's different. I, I don't know, like, would it be interesting to, to give people like tips on back to school for next year to like help people think about how to Things pick their schools better? So much though, like the school I went to doesn't even exist anymore. It merged with another campus and now it's a totally different environment. So who are we? Or I mean, so you, you have think. Ki- you don't know that. You have kids in school, so yeah. you're a little yeah, more Yeah, I can't talk about schools. It's, it's a little tough because then you have to talk about your kid's school and you have to exactly. ask a question. Are my, am I going to critique my kid's school or not? I, I, I'm going to stay away from that one for now, but um, for, at least for my kid's school. But, you know, there should be more discussions and more openness about saying this is why this is a good school. This is why this isn't. And there, what there is exists now is a lot of hearsay and a lot of innuendo. And you go to any school and they tell you, yes, of course, our school is the best school. Um, and then you take that step back and you hear all sorts of stuff. But there's no real way of thinking and guidelines. But that's because yeah. it's not a mattress that you're buying, right? Well, you're talking like, about people. Um, the interview that we did uh, about York University was really interesting because um, I forget her name, but the woman Rhonda who... Lenton, the that's president? what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> Rhonda Lenton. It came into my head, but I wasn't sure. Um, was kind of saying, well, this is all over the news, but really it's there's so much Jewish life on campus. And then I met someone recently in an event in Montreal who went to York and was like, actually, these are all the horrible anti-Semitic things that I witnessed while I was on campus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Definitely it's not all black and white. For sure. David, yes, do you want to read us the next letter? Right now. Here it goes. Uh, I really don't remember much in the way of Israel activism at McGill Hillel in that era, but it did strike me as somewhat cliquey. There were a group of people who were largely from Cote St. Luke or the West Island types who all knew each other, possibly from, you know, CJEP or even high school before that, would come together for events and a separate group of more from people, mostly Americans, it seems at the time, who also hung out together. So what do we make of that comment where we really were talking about the resurrection of Hillel uh, and and different Jewish organizations on university campus? Well, so the first, you know, that's interesting that, you know, there's a recognition that times change and things change over time, but also things stay very much the same over time. The idea that um, even then, there were many people at Hillel, even though it was very busy and very active, who felt very much left out. Um, and uh, that that writer also was, spoke about the staff at the time, who, you know, he mentioned, he made mention about the fact that there was a Haredi rabbi that was hired as the Hillel rabbi, and it wasn't necessarily the greatest choice, especially if you were somewhat liberal um, or anything left of Haredi, then there's not much for you. And Hillel, you know, went in the opposite direction to, you know, sometimes, and, you know, it's hard to balance those things. Um, you know, the whole plus a change, right? That's, that's, 
part of that letter and that's part of the discussion that we were having with Hillel. And the first piece of Chuva that I think is important to talk about is that judging from their um, their various uh, social media postings and stuff, because I have been following um, just to follow up on the story, they seem to be very active this year. I don't know if it's true or not. I'd love to hear from current students. Um, have things changed drastically or is it just that they have a great social media person posting stuff? Um, I'm, I'm okay to be wrong because I think that the point of that story was not just to call people out and to say, you're bad, you know, this is a bad Hillel, you know, shame on you, you know, be done. Um, but it's really designed to change. I want things to get better, right? That's why we did the story last week about the Hasidic schools. It's about saying, what can we think of to make things better? So the first piece of Chuvah is to sort of start by saying, um, Hillel does seem to have changed. And so if that is the case, then I'm not going to chalk it up to our story that we covered, um, because, you know, Hillel must have been in the works for a long time during, you know, that interim. Um, but, you know, that's that's the first piece. But I think that there's something interesting there about recognizing um, that times change and, and organizations go through phases and uh, maybe they were in a descendant phase and they're they're coming up now and um, that's it. But the, the historical awareness is important for sure. So um, there was a couple of uh, emails. One was anonymous, um, which, you know, says all that you need to say about what this person wants to talk about. Um, and then the other one was also a little strange. Um, sorry if I'm going to say it, um, but I'll, I'll read parts of both of them or whatever. I noticed in a recent CJN email, a story and a photo about interfaith marriage. However, I was surprised to find that the subject of the article was a same-sex couple. It seems that to the CJN, the issue was that they were interfaith, but not that they were same-sex, two men marrying each other. Since the CJN is, so I thought, addressed to the mainstream Jewish community, I think that it's reasonable to ask what the Orthodox Jewish view is on same-sex marriage. Could you please tell me the Orthodox Jewish point of view on same-sex marriage, right? And then that was followed on the heels by um, somebody who wrote in and asked, why is it so much greater a Jewish man via a non-Jewish woman as a vice versa? It is about physical attractiveness, in parentheses. Um, and how many second-generation kids marry back into the faith? And then another point, the rejection by the Orthodox and its political implications in fundraising in the community. So there's a lot of stuff here to unpack or not um the, the first thing that i want to say is the comment about isn't the cjn supposed to be mainstream because i feel like that kind of goes back to what we were talking about before so that's basically this person is assuming that all jews have one opinion are of one political background jewish denomination and sure yes the mainstream judaism is a thing and it exists and we know what it looks like but i really think that in the rebranding of the CJN, including this podcast and all the other podcasts, the whole point was to open that up, open the umbrella up to include everyone. Because I think it was the opposite of what he was trying to say. He says, oh, you're talking to the mainstream. But if we're talking about all these different things, we should talk about orthodoxy also. And I want you to talk about why orthodoxy is against same-sex marriage, right? And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, I don't think that that's the role of what we're trying to do here is to tell everything to everybody at all the time, right? If Yeah. Right. Well, that reminds me of the of the circumcision uh, the thirty one. That reminds me of the circumcision episode because I remember we got a very angry email from an Orthodox rabbi who said, "How could you talk about this? The CJN is becoming way too liberal. What's happening?" Um, I just find that so interesting when as soon as you bring up something that's from a different perspective, and some of the times we don't even agree with those things. Like especially on that episode, I remember you and I were both kind of 
we weren't necessarily advocating mm-hmm. for this at all. Yep. In fact, I would say the opposite. But mm-hmm. we still talk to the guy because there are some people who feel that way. And I think it's mm-hmm. important to give voice to everyone. And that's going to go for the future also. And that I'm unrepentant about that. I have no chuva about saying that we need to um, have voices of people that are not uh, represented otherwise and elsewhere. Um, so in that sense, yes. Um, but... I, uh, do we, David, do we need to do chuva? If you this, want me to do chuva, story? I'll do it. I feel I'm a bit biased. This is, this was my own wedding. So how, how far of forgiveness and repentance can I really go? I, I just don't understand the second commentary about physical attractiveness. Did that mean that this person thought goys, non-Jews were more attractive or less than, or less attractive than Jews? I, I'm very confused. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hmm. I don't know. I mean, clearly he saw our pictures on the, <laughs> the, the show page and said, yes, the, the hosts of Moshe Chai are representative of the Jewish community and are extremely attractive and above average in terms of looks. Um, but too conservative, apparently. Uh, okay. I'll, yes, I'll take that person. Too. Very, very conservative. They, uh, if, if, mm-hmm. if they rubbed my ego and thought um, I was very good looking, I will take that and say thank you very much. Um, okay. Well, look, we, we are always improving. We're always trying to get better. And uh we do like your emails, so please keep sending them in, and please tell us what you thought about anything over the past year. And you, we, we've taken suggestions for topics we, uh, that, that has happened in the past. Uh, we, we are interested in them. Send us your emails, and hopefully next year we'll do more chuva based on what you tell us we are doing wrong. And now for the moment you've all been waiting for, part one of Bonjour Chai's first annual Sermon Slam. There's still time to enter, so if you're a rabbi or you want to nominate your rabbi, send us an email at bonjour at the cjn.ca. That's also the email you should use to send us your votes. Yes, that's right. We will take the audience votes into consideration when selecting our winner. That is, of course, in addition to a rigorous process involving many factors. But yes, we want to hear who you think gave the best sermon. So send us an email at bonjour at the cjn.ca. Let us know. Up first, we have Vancouver native Rabbi Joshua Korber. With a commitment to halakhic observance and progressive values, he received rabbinical ordination at the conservative movement's Ziegler School in Los Angeles. After many years serving the Beit Rayim congregation in Toronto, this high holiday season will be his first as the senior rabbi at Adath Yeshurun in Louisville, Kentucky. Kicking off our series, his sermon reflects on the power and joy we can find when we think about our own deaths. Here's Rabbi Joshua Korber. Rabbi Aaron Reuven Charney in the introduction to his famous work, the Malam Itzchut, quotes a verse from the book of Kohelet. Tov lelechet el beit avel melechet el beit hamishteh. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a party. Ve'asher husof kol adam libo. Because that is the ultimate end of each person, and the one who was living will pay attention. And he brings the quote from the Talmud where Rabbi Meir asks, what does it mean, the one who is living will pay attention? It means he will pay attention to matters pertaining to his own death. I too will be eulogized. I too will be buried. Well, that's just not very uplifting. Why does Rev. Aaron want me to think about my own death? Why is that good? He then explains, and I quote, Remembering that one day you will die has healing powers in that it assaults the Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination, especially at the moment where the coffin is laid before everyone. So the living person will pay attention to his smallness, his weakness, his nothingness. He pays attention to all the hevalot, the futilities that are the pursuit of wealth and pleasure, and he will make tshuva, and it will heal him. The opposite of this 
is the house of celebration, where the evil inclination assaults the good inclination, and the mind regresses and becomes occupied with various fancies. The house of mourning makes one wise. The house of celebration makes one stupid. Unquote. I want to call your attention to two concepts he uses here, the hevalot and the yetzerhara. The hevalot are the focus of Kohelet, which he quotes above and which we'll read in the Shabbat of Sukkot towards the end of the High Holidays. Hevel is usually translated as vanity and futility, but a better translation is something like a puff of hot air or vapor, which appears for a brief moment and then it is gone. That's the vanity and the futility which Kohelet is concerned about. For Kohelet, virtually everything people think is important in life is in fact completely immaterial to life. It's an illusion because you think it's something solid and it turns out to be impermanent when it vanishes. This creates several problems. First, if we spend our lives ignoring what is important, we'll be sad and regretful at the end of our life. There is a famous Indian parable about a man on his deathbed who asks, where is my eldest son? And he says, father, I'm here with you. He says, where is my second son, my middle son? He too answers, father, I'm right here with you. He asks, where is my third son? And they all say, father, we're all here. All of your sons are with you. And then he sits up and he shouts, then who's watching the store? And then drops dead immediately. To focus on things like finance, academics, achievement, accomplishment, to the detriment of our inner spiritual, emotional well-being, and to the detriment of our relationships, is the tragedy of our time. These things are important and positive pursuits, but when we begin to worship them like idols, they become hevalot, vanities. The pursuit of these vanities, as Rev. Aaron points out, impairs our better nature and diminishes whatever judgment or higher consciousness we might have. In the vacuum of consciousness, the Yetzirah is more than happy to take its place, and this leads to even greater harm and greater tragedy. The Yetzirah is not itself evil. It's simply our limbic brainstem seeking survival and telling our cerebrum, I want this, I want that, I need this, I need that. And it's up to us to employ our intelligence and our good judgment to respond. Failing to realize this, most of us are unconsciously dragged along a roller coaster ride which we can't get off of. The Yetzer Hara and the Hevalot are closely linked. The Hevalot offer tempting illusions of things we can want, even things which are inherently good, which then turn out to vanish into nothing. The pursuit of all of this nothing strengthens the Yetzer Hara which causes us to stray from our higher selves, and this causes enormous damage. For example, the incalculable ecological damage we have done to this planet is the direct result of our fanatical pursuit of consumer goods and higher profit margins. We are not evil by nature. We all have good intentions, but none of us are immune to these hevalot. We get caught up in the news without noticing the homeless in our streets. We get caught up in our phones without noticing the people around us. We get caught up in our money without noticing the breath in our lungs. And we get caught up in our kids' success without noticing our kids. The living will pay attention. There are things we are not paying attention to. And for too often, it takes a tragedy to alert us and remind us of those things. We are not strangers to loss this year. When I look out this congregation, I see faces of people who've lost loved ones. It's been a very rough year, more than usual. And while some of us have passed away at a ripe old age, most were not so old, and some died way too young. 
in the face of that kind of loss, we suddenly realize that the squabbling and bickering with our siblings and with our parents, the resentment we feel towards those who have insulted us, and the frustrations we feel in the daily grind of life at work and at home are an outrageous crime we are committing against ourselves and against our loved ones. It's Hevel. When the shofar is blasted, it's meant to be a wake-up call, to slap us out of our insanity and to alert us to the fragility of our lives, the importance of our choices and the need to act. This time of year is about life and death. Rather than passively awaiting divine judgment, the rabbis encourage us to be the ones to choose life. The hevalot, which we run around pursuing, those are not life. They are cleverly disguised as life, but they are not life. They are things. To choose life is to choose to be connected to God by being connected to our inner selves and our spirits and thereby connecting to all beings. If we choose life, our words and our actions will be guided by compassion and wisdom, which will enrich our lives, our families' lives, our community, and ultimately the world. We can choose to hear that shofar, or we can just stuff our hearts and minds with more hevel until the next tragedy wakes us from our slumber. We can and we must heal ourselves and heal this world. And those are really one project. And that is the meaning of teshuva, tefillah, tzedakah. Shana tova. Next up, we have Rabbi Aaron Flansreich. Originally hailing from Brooklyn, New York, he is a graduate of Bar-Ilan University. In 1992, Rabbi Flansreich received a dual ordination from the Israeli Chief Rabbinate and Yeshivat Sha'ar Ephraim. He's a former president of the Toronto Board of Rabbis, current president of the Rabbinical Assembly Ontario Region, and author of the book, The Small Still Voice. Since 1998, Rabbi Flansreich has served as the senior rabbi at Beth Shalom in Toronto. His sermon considers something that's occurred to many a shulgoer, why are we all slogging through a language that most of us barely understand? Here's Rabbi Aaron Flansreich. All of the major Jewish population surveys tell us a few things. Number one, less than half of every North American Jew knows, recognizes any of the Hebrew alphabet. The alphabet. Less than 30% of North American Jews can understand the Hebrew words that they may read in a Haggadah or in a Siddur. What I'm actually saying to you is, is that the most highly educated, successful Jewish community in the history of Jewish history is on the precipice of completely not understanding the language that they come from, which then begs the next question. What's the next question? Why don't we just do everything in English? Like, why keep the Hebrew if nobody understands it? And the struggle of that, of course, is seen in the Mafsa, in the prayer book that we have. That English, that Chaucer wouldn't even understand. And what it really is, is that there is an element of the prayers that are so incomprehensible in terms of translation that even the English struggles to capture it. And it's bumbling, and it's not good. I look at it and say to myself, what is that? So then why do we keep this language? Why don't we flip over to English? The Catholic Church did it. The Second Vatican Council of 1962. They went from Latin to English. Why do we keep Hebrew? The answer to that question, we got to take a trip. You ready? We're going to go to Jerusalem. 
on a beautiful leafy street in the German colony called Klausner Street was the home where Israel's only Nobel Prize laureate for literature lived. His name was Shmuel Yitzchak Agnon, S.Y. Agnon. And the story goes that the great American Jewish writer Saul Bellow visited him. It was a Shabbat afternoon. And they spoke about literature and language and the Jews and Israel. And the sun was setting and it was pastel-filled. And that Bello turned to Agnon, the Israeli, and he said to him, I have to confide in you. There are some sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I am gripped by a fear that my writing will be forgotten. That in a generation or two or three that everyone will forget what I wrote. And Agnon turned to him and said, Are your writings translated in Hebrew? And Bello said, they are. And Agnon said, you have nothing to worry about. You'll never be forgotten. We are a small people. A tiny people. But we are a great people. And we hold on to this language because it reminds us. Not only are we small and not only mighty. But we're eternal. We will never be forgotten because we never forget. Rounding out our first round of the Great Canadian Sermon Slam, we have Rabbi Aaron Polanski. Born in Montreal but raised in Thornhill, Ontario, Rabbi Polanski attended Queen's University, becoming the first student to receive a minor in Jewish studies. She then began her studies at the Reform Movement's Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem and later in Cincinnati, where she earned rabbinical ordination in 2000. Rabbi Polanski currently serves the Beth Israel Congregation in Kingston, Ontario. Like our first slammer, this sermon also considers how we reflect on death, or really, undeath, I should say. You'll understand what I mean in a minute. For now, he's Rabbi Aaron Polanski. Traditionally, Yom Kippur is a rehearsal for death. Each one of us is a year closer to dying than we were last year, no matter how many hands and fingers and toes we need to count our age. And so we dress in white, like the burial shrouds. We don't eat or drink. We don't shower or anoint ourselves with perfumes. We don't engage in sexual activity. We remove our fancy jewelry and instead choose to dress simply right down to our shoes. It's strange and almost uncharacteristic of Judaism to have such a holiday. We're usually so life-affirming. Any law may be suspended in order to save a life. Pikuach nefesh, the saving of life, takes precedence over everything. We say l'chaim, to life, over every glass of wine. We celebrate and thank God for every milestone we meet with blessings of shehechianu and acts of tzedakah. But on Yom Kippur, we confront death. We rehearse it. We envision what life will be like. What life will be like for others when we are gone. We imagine how we will be remembered. We confront that image and evaluate what we need to change so that one day when that time comes, maybe a long time from now, poo -poo, we are remembered for good. Because death is a final decree. Or is it? 
Did you know that belief in resurrection of the dead is actually a required belief in Judaism? That's right. We do have requirements in the belief department, at least according to some of our classical rabbis. Now, mostly, with the exception of Maimonides, the Jewish community holds that those who behave like Jews and perform the mitzvot, the commandments, even if they have deviant ideas, are still Jews and worthy of a place in our community. There is one notable exception, the belief in the physical resurrection of the dead. That's right. Have you ever read the translations of what we're praying? Jews are supposed to believe that in the end time, even every decomposed body will be reconstituted and will come back onto earth once again. Picture the zombie apocalypse, but much happier and less scary. The Mishnah insists that this belief is required by any person who is to have a place in the world to come. It's so central to our faith, in fact, that the rabbis made it the subject of the second blessing of the Amidah, and we recite it three times a day. Do you find physical resurrection hard to believe? So do I. In fact, the reform movement excised this notion from its liturgy altogether way back in the 19th century, except, interestingly, for one service in its Yom Kippur prayer book, because maybe because of this rehearsal for death imagery. But normally, the words mechayehametim, give life to the dead, in reform prayer books, is replaced with mechayehakol, gives life to all. All still encompasses the dead, of course, but it's not so apparent that that's what's intended. The reform prayer book is reflecting what most people probably feel, a skepticism. We tend to trust what we've seen and experienced, and I don't know about you, but I've never witnessed a resurrection. The Torah also doesn't know about resurrection. There's no mention of it in the entire five books of Moses. In fact, Moses himself probably hadn't thought of the idea. The closest we come is in 1 Samuel in the text of Hannah's prayer as she recites, as she reaches out to God in despair. She says, The eternal one deals death and gives life, casts down into Sheol and raises up. Sheol is the biblical understanding of where dead people go and is often mistranslated as hell. It's more like a holding room. We read, this, we read this passage in our Haftarah for Rosh Hashanah. The rabbis, though, felt that belief in resurrection was so important that it ought to be in the Torah, so they actually read it into the Torah. They built a creative midrash to find hints of resurrection in the Torah. Pages and pages of Talmud Sanhedrin are devoted to these far-fetched attempts. One of the best reads, Rabbi, said Rabbi Simai, there is no passage in the Torah that lacks the proof of resurrection, but we lack the power to expound it. In other words, the doctrine of Tichiyat HaMetim is everywhere in the Torah. Not only the doctrine, but actual proof. We're just not astute enough to recognize it. It's right there, below the surface. What our rabbis want us to envision is what's referred to in the scholarly community as eschatology, the so-called end times. That is what they believe is under the surface in all of Torah. Eschatological visions, visions of the end times, usually describe a perfect world, heaven on earth. Everything that is broken is repaired, 
All legal disputes are resolved. The lion lies down with the lamb and swords are beaten into plowshares. Hard to believe in such a world, no doubt. But our rabbis ask us to imagine such a place, to look forward to a peaceful world, because maybe if we believe that is possible, it will become possible, or at least open us up to new possibilities. There are several types of religious teachings. First, there's history. We learn about what was, what people did, what they believed, etc. Second, there are theological beliefs that we have since moved past. We might even call them false today. Maybe they were true at one time, but they no longer hold as mainstream beliefs. The final category are those traditions or beliefs that are meant to be understood metaphorically. They often appear as poems, myths, stories, or songs, and they transmit truths within them, even if they themselves are not literally true. I think this belief in Triatamitim falls into this third category. Of course, it makes no sense as fact, but we are called upon to imagine that it is. This dogma affirms that being life-focused ultimately wins out. Order prevails over chaos, and there is meaning beyond the grave. Tichiatamitim is a powerful notion on the metaphorical level. Sometimes we feel that we are beyond despair. Maybe we've lost a loved one without whom we feel we cannot live. Maybe we are depressed, ill, or feel hopeless when we look at our life's prospects and possibilities. Praying, Baruch Atah Mechayeh HaMeitim, Blessed are you who gives life to the dead, is about ourselves. If the esteemed rabbis of old believe that God has the power to revive the dead, then certainly God has the power to give me and each one of us hope, renewed hope, to revive our souls, to help us find meaning in life once again. Each one of us has the power to revive ourselves, to renew our resolve, to reignite the spark within us. Now it's time in their show for our extra special year-end Nachas of the Nachas of the Year. Make it count this time. That oh, thing no. that made us really no, no. It's fine <laughs> to be an ordinary Nachas. Um, David, what's your Nachas this week? Well, I, I I came into Quebec and Ontario for my cousin's wedding, so I flew in. I drove my parents to Muskoka over the weekend, and my first cousin was getting married. So I just wanted to wish them all the muzzles, some of the tovs. Uh, it was a fantastic wedding out in the camp. I'm not very, I'm not a camp person, but they decided to have it in this camp setting. Um, and it was a fantastic uh, affair. I had a blast. So thank you, cousin, for everything. And I wish you all the best in your future marriage to your wife. Alana, what's your nachas? Mine is pretty fun. So um, a few weeks ago, I interviewed the Jewish Torontonian director, Alan Ungar, about his new movie, Bandit, that's coming out in theaters tomorrow. Uh, the 23rd, depending on when you are listening, Friday the 23rd. Um, and I got to attend the advanced screening of the film um, the other day uh, in downtown Toronto, which was really fun. Um, I can't say too much about the film because I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but it's about the famous Canadian bank robber, uh, the Flying Bandit. And they did a good job with it. It's a fun, uh, adventurous movie with lots of... Um, 
ups and downs and dramatic moments, but also some comedy and some some action and some robbery. And I think it's a good time. So check out Bandit coming out in theaters tomorrow. And if you are a bandit, um, you uh, have right right in the right time to do chuva on uh, you know for for Elul now and to be done with it. Yeah, um, I am gonna. I, I can't remember if I gave this as my nachas last year this time, um, and if I did, it doesn't matter because it bears repeating. Um, if there is one book that you should read this entire period of the high holiday period, um, it is called "This Is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared" uh, by Rabbi Alan Liu. It's the high holidays as a period of spiritual transformation. I literally have reread it from cover to cover every year since it came out probably about 17, 18 years ago. Um, it is a magnificent book. It's uh, the stories in there, the the ability to focus you on what is important around this period of high holidays um, is unparalleled and uh, I cannot recommend it enough. So go and get yourself a copy of that book in print, not in digital, so that you can bring it with you to shul and read during the boring moments and make everything uh, meaning, more meaningful than it already was. I thought you were going to say if you have one book to read this year, make it the Torah Wow, right. that was a that was an epic sigh. <laughs> that was an epic sigh. <laughs> this is part of the Torah, right? It is part of wisdom, and the Torah is not just the five books. The Torah is all of the Torah. So yes, read this chapter in the three thousand year old history of the Torah, and uh, and be mindful and moved by it for the for this time of year. Uh, but yes, read the Torah. Okay, David. Alrighty. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending September 24th, Shabbat Parashat Nitzavim. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell someone in shul about Bonjour Chai. I'm sure God wouldn't mind. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. And from all of us at Bonjour Chai and the CJN, we'd like to wish you a Shana Tova. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. 